This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here with the writer Diana Suhami to talk about her new book, No Modernism Without Lesbians, out 2020 with Head of Zeus Books. Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. This was such a a delightful book. Um, And I'm so happy to talk to you. Your bio is pretty great. Um, And in 2014, you were named a Rainbow List National Treasure in the Lifetime Achievement category. You and Sir Ian McKellen. So how about that? That's... (laughs) And, and there was a rugby player whose name I can't remember, I'm afraid. But no, I, I, so I, I at times forget that I am a national treasurer. But when I'm particularly glum, I sort of remind my, pinch myself and remind myself. But I think not, not many in the world know, know this about me. <laughs> I, I think I would have. Concur. <laughs> I think I would have T-shirts made or something, I right? Will. I think I will. Yeah, or tattoo, perhaps. Perhaps, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a lifetime achievement, so it won't go old. Like you, that's a great idea. Um, but it's it is pretty amazing. You've been writing about women, often lesbians, for you know most of say my life. Um, you've written about not, and I am not that young. You've written about Radcliffe Hall, Gluck, Gwendolyn Harleth, Edith Cavill, amongst others. What what motivated these decisions? How did you decide that this was your path? Well, you know, I am old. <laughs> I better get that over with quickly. I'm eighty, which is incredibly old, isn't it? I was born at the beginning of. Um, I was born in nineteen forty. So you know, growing the the world has changed hugely, and for me, growing up, there was there was nothing to read about lesbians, and there was no mention of it. I mean, there was was silence and so I think it was my way of coming out and I'd written I'd written plays and stories and given them a a lesbian theme but then I got a letter from a feminist publisher wanting to know if there was a book I'd like to write because she'd liked my bits of journalism and book reviews and I'd seen this exhibition of uh, society painter Gluck androgynous and and um There's a picture of hers, I don't know if you know it, it's called the You We picture of the fused profiles of her and her lover, Ernest Obama. And it sort of rang, it struck such a chord in me that I got a commission, I thought of her, Gluck, and got a commission to write her biography. And that was the beginning of it, really. Thereafter, I've written lots of others. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a different world now, right? The The world has changed considerably. We live in this much more accepting time. I mean, at least where we are in Western Europe. Um, and it's it's interesting to see how, like the, how the idea of the lesbian has changed. We went from like no one speaking about lesbians to now 
kids are eschewing the term lesbian. And I feel like we only had a few minutes for us to be like, wait, yay, lesbians. I think it's true. Catching up, catching up with initialism and, and, and labels is very difficult. For me, it's the trajectory, which I, I wrote the first one, Gluck, her biography, 35 years ago. And I was very careful not to mention the word lesbian because any no no mainstream publisher would want it. They, it makes them, you know, the word made your mother have a nervous breakdown. Publishers curl in their boots and run away. Now, in this latest book, and for the first time, the publisher wanted the word lesbian in the title. Um, and it's a sort of, it's a mark of how things have changed. And and I, I'm pleased, even though I know for a lot of people, they throw up their hands and say, that's a false word. What about LGBTQIA, Quilpac Plus, etc.? And all the letters in the alphabet. Um, there's a breakthrough to take that word and stop it being demonic, you know, or or apologetic, and for it to be a triumphant word is for me feels very important. So, you know, I don't mind all of the of the women I write about in the book. They wouldn't be lesbian, if you like. I mean, one of them, Briar, um, Winifred Elliman, as she was born, would be trans in today's terms, but she would never use that word about herself or even the word lesbian about herself, you know. So the vocabulary evolves, and I agree with you, it goes more quickly than we can keep up with it. <laughs> And it can be a tyranny, I think. I mean, I think um, initialism can be a tyranny because people will come in from on top and reject because they feel the terminology is wrong without realising what the intention is. Well, and I mean, your your title embraces, you know, no modernism without lesbians. Um, and I'm sure that that was a decision as well to think about, like, should should we use the word lesbian when maybe these women wouldn't have called themselves lesbians. Yes, I think um, I'm not apologetic for the title. For the title. It, wasn't, it did evolve with the publisher as well. And as I say, my, my delight really that they would be as out as that. I mean, I couldn't have no modernism without LGBTQIA+. But, yeah. but no, more than one. <laughs> book you know yeah no modernism without women who had special relationships with other women that they may not have known how to define that's that's not catchy I can't, we, we don't off the tongue yeah no it does not it's not it's not that's not like the magic that you want for ad copy uh, but I'm it's so delightful to see it written down right, to just see this title because it's a thing that many people who know this period know the 20s would say Right. And something, you know, that I found myself yelling at parties. I don't want to hear about James Joyce anymore. Do you realize you wouldn't know who he was without Sylvia Beach? And it was so nice to just see this title. Look, ha, told you <laughs> this is true. Yes. I mean, I think so. So I, I take four women in the book and focus on them because, I mean, there, there could have been any any number of them, hundreds or maybe that's plenty more than four, but I took four because I wanted it to be character-driven because individual stories are more interesting than a whole lot of theories. Um, but Sylvia Beach, I mean, she was remarkable. She single-handedly published Ulysses, 
when no when it was banned as obscene because there was censorship in in Britain and in the States. And, um, you know, and she didn't have money. She just devoted her life to publishing this book because she saw it as a modernist breakthrough. Um, and he he treated her very badly. Terribly, So yeah. you can't end up hearing the story or reading the story and liking the man um, because she gave everything to it. And the, pub- the publishing, it was a nightmare because nobody could read his writing and he went into draft after draft and there was no finishing the book as far as he was concerned. But she published and distributed it. It was an extraordinary achievement. Um, and it is taken as, you know, the seminal work of the break from 19th century literary form to the new. And that was Sylvia Beach, yes, plus another of the characters in in my No Modernism book, Briar, who helped with the financing of it, you know. Yeah, that uh, this is a thing I learned reading the book. I didn't under I didn't know about Briar's involvement with this as well. <clears throat> and you also include Natalie Barney and Gertrude Stein and kind of their connections in their milieu. And you've you've written about some of these women before, but why did you choose the four of them? Well, again, it it evolved, and um, I, I, you know, when you're writing a book, it t- it takes on its own dynamic, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I took them because Sylvia Beach, I thought, was so, and the, they're they're all so different, and because I can sometimes suffer this initialism and be impatient with it, and feel that it, although it's important, it can also be a handicap. I wanted to show how different they were as people, and putting them together highlights their difference, if you like. Um, also, to make life easier for myself, I had written inside, uh, before about Natalie Barney and about Gertrude Stein, but in a different, different way. I'd written about the happy marriage of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas in a book, Gertrude and Alice, because I like the irony that, you know, happy marriage was achieved by two two women who loved each other when heterosexual marriages were failing all around. They fulfilled all the all the all the needs of a happy marriage, you know, fell in love, lived together in harmony, enjoyed life. I mean, it was a good story. Had lunches and dinners. And then uh, Natalie, I I included, I'd written about her before because I'd written about her relationship with um, Romaine Brooks. But this time it was just concentrating on how she considered her life a work of art and how she gave courage to other uh, lesbians to be out and proud of themselves. I mean, she was so out, Natalie, you know, what a wonderful... And uh, so, and larger than life, right? And then she has, and she had the means to create this kind of sapphic paradise, you know, that she envisions her her life being. Yes, it's quite interesting how how Sappho and the Greek ideal rumbles through all their lives, you know, and figured very largely. I mean, Natalie had these sapphic dances in her in the garden, in the garden with them all in white robes or whatever, which annoyed the neighbours, you know, I don't know what they were up to a lot. <laughs> I think it would be so much fun. I would love to be, just get to hang out with these women for a couple days. But yeah. what's what's going on in the 20s? Like, why is there this 
explosion of why do all these women, as you call it, throw over your man and uh, and move to Paris? What's going on? I think I think there's contributing factors. A big one was that there was censorship in at home if you were in the states or in Britain. There was also. Um, there was also you couldn't get a drink in the, in in the states. You know. um, there was also the, the at the end of the you know people had come out of this terrible war, the First World War, um, and women. I, Gertrude Stein said it wasn't just, and then there was Paris, and Gertrude Stein said it wasn't just what Paris gave you; it was all it didn't take away. And I think one of the things that I learned writing this book or researching it was how important it is to get away if you're in a hostile environment that that is just not going to accommodate you. You know, is going to is going to criticize you, blame you, penalize you. Um, and they got away from family expectations, from repression, from censorship, and they were like. They really were the corks out of the bottle, do you know? I mean, it was freedom. And they inspired each other and helped each other. It was an extraordinary community. And I don't know why it is that certain places at certain times have that magnetic pull. But they really do. I think it's an interesting thing, the almost tangible sense that a place has, you know, or a city. And Paris at that time, rents, Rents were low, food was cheap and good, and what company they had, you know? Yeah, certainly. I'm, and, you know, the women you write about here, but uh, so many, you know, dozens more women are running around, and some men that are worth talking to as well. Um, <laughs> it's a good well, time. And they, did, and they accept, I mean, you know, um, they all gravitated towards Sylvia Beach, you know, who she founded Shakespeare and Company, which still to this day is the, the famous Paris bookshop. But, you know, all, the, all, all those writers like Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, they all gravitated to Shakespeare and Company and Sylvia Beach. She was more than a bookseller, more than a publisher of Ulysses. You know, she helped them. Financially, she ran her bookshop as a lending library as well because they didn't have money, so they could borrow books. Which they, she had this sort of filing system of when they were supposed to return them, but they seldom did on time. You know, she it was it was a a lifestyle that she that she followed that was was really extraordinary. Um, and she did say that she thought the way any self-respecting American writer left the States and went to Paris was because they couldn't get Ulysses and they couldn't get a drink because there was prohibition. Sure. The first thing they did when they got off the ship <laughs> was have a drink. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And maybe with her as well, right? And then head down to her. Yeah. yeah. I just, I love her. You know, I just I love Sylvia Beach and I really wish I could have met her, like, you know. She's on my list of women I'd like to have met. But I just learned when reading your book that she renamed herself. Um, and then at your urging, really, I began to think about what that means. And then the next chapter is about Briar, who was born Annie Winifred, which is adorable. Um, and they're just two examples. But there, there's this, women are renaming themselves. And that seems so basic, but so important. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, I wish I'd done it early on. I'm not quite sure. But also to choose, like Briar, Briar is an, a, one of the silly isles where 
um, you know, she was born Winifred Elliman. She felt herself to be in the wrong body, like that that gender thing of that transsexual people do feel that she felt she should have been a boy. Um, you know, it, it's such a strong feeling that it's mm-hmm. it takes empathy to understand it, um, but it is there, and she felt it. She just felt herself to be in the wrong body. She couldn't bear being called Winifred. She couldn't bear having curly hair. She chose the name Briar because it was an island where she'd been happy and where she, and it was in the Ciliars that she met her lifetime partner, if you like, Hilda Doolittle, HD. But I do agree with you that taking, you know, get if you're breaking from patriarchy, take choosing your own name is a hugely big thing to do. And more of us should do it, I think. Mm-hmm. If you could decide, if you could decide on a name. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that, I can't imagine what it would be. I'm so glad my mom took care of that for me, that I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> One more thing not to have to worry about. <laughs> what I would possibly name myself. But, um, hmm? yeah, yes, maybe just, it, may, it does matter in a way. Monosyllabic names are always good, aren't they? Sure. Quick, easy to do. People aren't going to give you a ridiculous nickname. That's nice. Madonna's been taken, of course. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, and Cher, which I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I, I, I have not earned Cher. <laughs> stick, stick with who, who, what we thought. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll work. Um, but it is, I mean, it's such a strong way to just say, like, this is a new start, too. It's a rebirth. It's like, mm. and on your own terms. And of course, we pointed out, you know, in the States, still many women take their husband's name when they marry, which mm. I don't fully understand. But um, you know, keeping your father's name isn't such a great statement either, right? <laughs> I mean, and there was Rene Vivian, of course, who, you know, bought Rene, Rene Vivian, born again to life. You know, she was born Pauline Tarn. She was one of Natalie Barney's lovers. You know, I mean, it was it was quite interesting, wasn't it? That, uh, this thing of, of uh, Gertrude Stein, of course, didn't need to because. <laughs> She just was who she was. She's that's perfect. Yeah, it's hard to imagine her being anything else. You know, <laughs> you know I was thinking too about Briar um, being a man caught in a woman's body, and then developing this relationship with Havelock Ellis, this pioneering sexologist. But she never got to calling her like she never went, got around to being a man or being trans or non-binary. Those you know those were words that didn't exist and I do wonder how she would identify today. Do you think she'd be trans? I think I think she was, but I think you know I've just read the memoir of Jan Morris, you know, um and it, it's really quite quite affecting. It's about being born he 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 was born um male and then was convinced well, was it's very hard to to articulate if you haven't lived through it. I think if you really, really do feel that it's wrong at a very early age, um, and I, Briar 
Would she have? I think she would, but not in a simplistic way because she was very, she was an intellectual, you know. And I think one of the things that I feel about writing about them all was how they wanted to put center stage and to the foreground their achievements beyond their beyond their gender identity. No, it was what they achieved. And I think one of the things that I felt about the this book was that how how much they achieved, how unapologetic they need be, how they needn't just be hung up if although that sounds a bit disparaging, how they needn't only focus on gender because what was important to them was was accomplishment, achievement, expression, articulation, and that these things take take them all out of the arena of any kind of appeal for acceptance, you know. They turn things on their head and say, you know, are you good enough for me, really? And the world wasn't good enough for them. You know, and it's a sort of rather than saying, you know, we want our rights, please accept us. They were really saying, catch up, catch up with us. Yeah, it's wonderfully liberating and freeing and 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 energizing, I think. Yeah, so they go to Paris and create this world that allows them to do the art they want to do. But I think you know one of the, the the main argument of your book really is that they don't just create art for themselves; they create modernism. They radically change. And we, you know, we don't have uh, the gender dynamics. We don't have the world where you get to be non-binary without the pioneering lives of these women. But we don't have art in the 20th century without this community, right? I think that's absolutely true. And I think if you think of 19th century orthodoxists and how patriarchal they were and how, you know, the w- women needed to change their names and, you know, be George Eliot if they wanted. God, right. But all that is just swept aside. And they had, and in a way, it's a head start to be whatever the appropriate words are, gender queer. Um, it's a head start because you're immediately outside of of patriarchy and the expectations and the and the and the standards, the nineteenth century standards of expression. You're excluded from them, and so if you're excluded, that's almost like as was Paris. You know this un- unfamiliar land, unfamiliar territory, if you like. There you have the blank canvas. Begin, begin anew, and that's, I think, why one of the contributing things of of how how their gender freed them, rather than rather than, <coughs> rather than hang, handicapped or handcuffed them. You know, and then it allows them to go and create <clears throat> this a, a world that suits them. Because there there isn't another one out there. Exactly, exactly. No, I mean, as 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 Gertrude Stein says somewhere, fathers, there's too fathers, there's too much fathering going on. You know, <laughs> in her inimitable way. I love Gertrude because she she writes incomprehensible prose, and but then is so hugely commonsensical and pithy and down to earth, and it's a wonderful juxtaposition. You know, of saying completely nonsensical things, but really being extremely shrewd and and pithy and down to earth and sensible. 
<laughs> she's so, well, I want to, um, I have a quote here that I actually would like to, let's, let me quote you quoting her about being a lesbian. She said, I like all the people who produce and Alice does too. And what they do in, the, in bed is their own business. And what we do is not theirs. She was equally laconic about her writing. 20th century literature is Gertrude Stein. She said without irony. <laughs> What a woman. Oh, my God. Yes, she was. I mean, she looked like she was as well, this sort of monolithic, Buddha-like, statuesque person who, 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 you know, wasn't, nothing was going to phase her in many ways, you know, nor would anything keep her away from a long and very delicious lunch. (laughs) God love her. (laughs) Right. And then if you think about... Take for lunch. (laughs) It's <laughs> lovely. Well, and if you think about, you know, these these delightful meals at her home where she's got Picasso hanging out, right, and everyone else, and her life is so steady. It feels very, very stable, her long-term wonderful marriage with Alice. Uh, and they have this quiet, like, and then I think about Natalie Barney, this chaotic tornado off to the side, this very stayed life with this incredibly strong character but like a quick and rather incomplete list of artists and writers who benefited from Gertrude and Alice T.S. Eliot, Hemingway, Picasso, Fitzgerald, Sherwood Anderson, Sinclair Lewis, Matisse, George Brock, Cezanne I think Cezanne's on that list. Well what she did was when she was when she was, you know, in her, in because she was one of the first to arrive in Paris. I think it was something like 1903. At my um, and she, before any of them were well known, she with her brother Leo, she'd go and just buy their, buy their, buy the paintings of Matisse and Picasso and Cezanne, and you know, they they set themselves a limit of not spending very much money. About five hundred pounds in today's money, perhaps, would be a limit. Um, and then they'd take them home. They took them home because they loved them and stuck them on the walls. They didn't frame them because why bother? And soon she had this collection that couldn't be insured because it was just simply beyond price. And then that's how her salons began because people were intrigued and horrified by modernist, uh, the foes they were called, the wild beasts, you know. The, the, the Matisse's work of there might be a green stripe down the middle of a portrait of a, of a portrait of his wife. You know, people were horrified, and she she just bought them because she liked them, not for not for investment or art collection. And people went one went to her Saturday summers to have a look at them. It's a dizzying to imagine having it's dizzying. The- yes. But then, then after the late um, <coughs> later on, it, it, she switched to she switched to um, to writers and 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 encouraging them. And and Sylvia Beach would just refer, you know, Hemingway or Scott Fitzgerald or Paul Bowles, just make give an entrance and in, in, um, arrange a meeting with Gertrude because that's who they wanted to see. And show her their work because it was felt that she could make or mar careers. Interesting, like so powerful. That's so interesting. Um, but so that that list I just rolled off. They, these artists and writers all have a particular thing in common, right? Which is that they're men. 
Um, and is there, I don't know of this and I, I don't know, I'm not saying like there isn't, I, I literally do not know if she supported any female artists. No, she was horribly chauvinistic. <laughs> I mean, it was awful really. I mean, um, the wives, I mean, Gertrude, um, Alice B. Tokler's, Gertrude's partner said she was going to write a, write a book called Wives of Geniuses I Have Sat With. <laughs> the wife was assigned to Alice and the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's shocking, really. I mean, I think it was Juna Barnes who, called, called, who talked of Gertrude's monstrous ego and thought her quite shocking. I think Gertrude had said of her that she had beautiful legs or something, you know. And she, she quite rightly took huge offence. <laughs> she wasn't, wouldn't pass in today's terms of of um, of, of political correctness. No, not even close. Would she? Poor Tuna <laughs> Barnes. Like, you know, I've written this wonderful book. Yes, that's right. We should talk about. Um, it's there's it's such a huge community, um, and you've chosen these four women as the center, um, and it, you you mentioned like you've written about some of them before, uh, but there feels it feels that they work together very well as a set, Natalie, Gertrude, Breyer, and Sylvia, mm-hmm. and it, it feels like it captures kind of the corners of this community very well. Yes, I think so. I mean, I did. I did worry that because they all had love, and Natalie in particular. I mean, you know, with, you 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 need a the, the encyclopedia of them. <laughs> right. Yeah, the Ladies' Almanac does not even begin to cover <laughs> Natalie Barney's list. My God. Yeah, and she she was quite a goer. So there are, and then you know there are other people. Like there was a point where I wondered if I should. Be calling this um, lesbians galore, you know, <laughs> in, in an unlimited number of volumes. But <laughs> yeah, the publisher waiting for it, you know, and that's kind of contact. So it, it was. It is a problem if you've got too many characters, because you get it. If you're as a reader, dear reader, poor reader, you know, this sense of indigestion and bewilderment of who earth these people are then you end up with sort of lists at the back of who they all are I didn't want that so it is partial but nonetheless something comes through in it all and I think this thing of of the hue of of energy and success and contribution and having a good time you know or living your life, even because a lot of them didn't. People like Dolly Wilde and Rene Vivian were quite tragic in many ways. But they, um, it was an extraordinary time, and and it, it it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. You know, why has it been hidden? Why is it hid? Why is so much of it hidden? Why is modernism given a you know talk talk so so masculine in its in the way it's taught and 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 um, presented well, and the fact that we talk about these artists, but the the community that made it possible has just been written out of history. Yeah, it's, that's right. Ma- I love. Mm-hmm. 
silence was silence was was well you know 1928 and the well of loneliness that to me rather awful book which was all when i was a child it was the only thing there was to read more or less you know the wall loneliness and i sort of read it and felt depressed because <laughs> if that's how it was yeah oh. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not like the list of books that these women are writing. You know, it's it, this this is not a parade of joy, right? There's nothing about Nightwood that makes you like. It's, That's right. It's not a happy book, right? No, no nor about nor about the actual model of it, really. No, very sad. Too much and rouse and um, and Dolly Wilde, a tragic figure, really. You know, and and that was another side of Natalie Barney that although she. Although, you know, Romaine Brooks and Elizabeth the Grammar were her relationships as opposed to her affairs or liaisons or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, there were casualties. I mean, yeah, of course. Wilde, Dolly Wilde, who really was a tragic life and drink and drugs and, and unrealized ambitions. Um, but... That's la- that we all know it in our own lives as well. Those who those who get through unscathed, and those who really um, bear the brunt of of pain, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah of someone else's genius. As yes. Well. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So uh, I love love these women, and it was so nice to visit this visit them in this book. So, what are you doing now? What's next? Well, I've, I've lockdown has had a weird effect on me. Like you know, somebody said, use the word languishing about it. And yeah. It's not an appropriate word. I feel I've been languishing through it, not knowing what day of the week it is. I've got a commission to write a memoir, um, and I'm sort of I know I'm ducking it, but I've got to get on with it. But I I bought this tumble down cottage in Cornwall and. I, I've got this perfect studio, and I've just got to get on with it. So when when, <laughs> when I stop languishing because of COVID and how awful it's all been and lockdown and lockout and lockup, that's what I'll be doing. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people in the past few months because this interviewing is the only thing I'm able to do right now. I can't finish a book to save my life. I can't finish a short essay to save my life. Why are we affected like this? I don't know, but we really are. Everybody. Yeah. We can't do it. And and I I don't know. I think it's something about, I don't know how I'm supposed to write when I don't have anyone to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) You find you don't know what day of the week it is. Oh, I have no clue. Why would I know that? Right? (laughs) It feels like Sunday always. Oh, does like and that's when you know something's coming and you can't really yeah it's no you you are absolutely not alone nobody's doing I mean except for that one woman on Twitter who said she said 75 citations or something I don't even believe she exists (laughs) you hate her so much but aside from her nobody's doing anything and we'll just we'll get on to it and Hmm. this year of languishing or contemplation we'll call it that will in the end probably be, uh, it'll make for a rich and wonderful memoir. I can't wait to read it. I, I, I hope you're right. I, li- I do hope I'm a fallow field that, you know, will spring to life right. when the sun shines. I am certain of it. Absolutely. 
I mean, we have to believe that, right? I mean, we're not certainly not we just going to lie down. Do. I mean, I do feel I'm longing to to reemerge. Do you feel that? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm very, very ready. <laughs> I must um, get a haircut, though. I have got an appointment. <laughs> oh, that's good. Don't worry about it. I've given up on any of that. Just let it go. Um, well, now that you have the cottage in Cornwall in the studio, there is no other excuse, right? <laughs> Don't don't remind me. I haven't told myself. <laughs> Sorry. What a great thing to agree to interview me, and I'm st- or you go to interview with me, and I'm t- like telling you to get on with your work, <laughs> taking you to task. I'm sorry. Uh, well, thank you very much for spending this time with me. It was a lovely conversation. I'm happy to meet you. Oh, thank you. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, and I'm very, I'm really looking forward to the memoir now. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. Bye. <laughs>